0: This is American History TV's Lectures in History podcast. This week, Ryder University Professor Myra Guten teaches a class on president and communications from Teddy Roosevelt in the early 20th century to the present.
1: Welcome everyone to our second class. This is uh, for the people who are here for the first time tonight. Uh, the Making of the President 2020, better known as the political circus of the century. Um, I'm going to be talking about two different and yet related topics. Um, The first has to do with the factors that are considered um, when we look at presidential effectiveness. The second part, I'd like to look at a few of the um, more uh, recent um, presidential elections. So we're going to start with this and um, I'm calling on the work of Professor Robert Dalek, um, a well-known presidential historian. Dalek writes, the 20th century saw an unprecedented expansion of presidential powers, primarily due to the vision and leadership skills of nine men who served in the office, Theodore Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Harry S. Truman, Dwight D. Eisenhower, John F. Kennedy, Lyndon Baines Johnson, Richard Nixon, and Ronald Reagan. Now, uh, Professor Dalek's analysis only looks at the 20th century. I'm going to uh, throw in some of the uh, presidents from the 21st century as we go along. So if we can go to the first slide, Professor Dalek... Uh, talks about these six points. The first one, he says, is vision. The second is charisma. I'm going to go back and talk about these. The second is charisma. The third is pragmatism. We'll move on to the next slide. Uh, the, The fourth is consensus building, followed by trust or credibility, luck. And then I'm going to throw in, which is on the last slide, and that is something that I'm going to call communication competence. Okay, and we're going to leave the slides behind for right now. So um, let's start with vision. Um, vision, according to Dalek, is that uh, presidents come up with an idea and they help us to um, develop um, Something that's going to pull us all together. Um, it's going to be something that uh, is going to unify us. Um, sometimes it it comes to us as a um, in a phrase, the New Deal, the New Frontier, the Great Society. Um, these would be the things that um, are going to uh, occur when we talk about vision. So let me talk about a few of the presidents then who were involved with this. And we're going to start with uh, Theodore Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt was the first president of the 20th century and he came to the White House at a time when The presidency was pretty weak. It was considered uh, really to be uh, certainly not what it is today. But Roosevelt began to um, expand that notion of it. And Roosevelt looks at the White House as an invitation to opportunity. And he talks about something that he calls the square deal, and something that he calls the new nationalism. The Square Deal was the idea that people in America were not being treated fairly by the very wealthy in the country by the trusts, which were groups of people that had come together in the industry to have certain sway over government. And this was going to be a way to deal with that and to make things a little more um, equitable, if you will. So the square deal was uh, going to try to um, establish a balance between what had been the moneyed interests and give more back to the people. The same with the new nationalism. Uh, the new nationalism um, was supposed to try to protect human welfare and property um, and uh, just to generally improve the lives of Americans. Now, um to go along with the vision, um, Theodore Roosevelt had an idea that all of us have benefited from. He was a conservationist and it was because of him that we eventually had and now have the national park system. Um, The national parks of course um, are enjoyed by millions of people every year and they're an enduring legacy to TR. Um, Another person with um, vision, Woodrow Wilson, who spoke about something called the new freedom. He said that the new freedom stood for the idea of restoring unfettered opportunity for individual action and being able to employ the power of the government on behalf of social justice. Now, it's kind of interesting that this comes from Wilson, because if you've been following what's transpired since the death of uh, George Floyd, then you know that um, some of the ideas that Wilson expressed were racist in nature, but he didn't seem to propound those ideas while in the White House, and instead really did fight for some social justice uh, revisions and legislation. Okay, if we're looking for the gold standard as far as vision, the person that we need to think about is Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Roosevelt, of course, comes to the White House at a um, a most uh, serious time in American history. It's the depths of the Depression. Twenty-five million people are out of work and um, he goes to the Democratic National Convention. He becomes the first modern presidential candidate to fly to a convention. Um, just the fact that he flew was a big deal because presidential candidates were not flying around in the 1930s, but he flew to Chicago and he stood in front of the people and he said, I pledge you, I pledge myself to a new deal for the American people. And, um, that showed extraordinary vision on the part of FDR, um, I assume that many of you know about uh, some of the uh, accomplishments of the the New Deal, but during the first 100 days, and we now talk about 100 days of any presidential administration, um, some of the legislation that would become part of this New Deal is put into effect. And it includes things like the AAA, which which is the Agricultural Adjustment Act, it includes FERA, the Federal um, Emergency Relief Agency. It includes uh, the uh, National Recovery Act. Now, interestingly, what finally pulls the country out of the depression, and I just want to ask if anyone knows the answer to, it, to this, what is it that finally goes beyond the New Deal and gets the country out of depression? Does anyone know? Hard for me to see. Um, does someone want to speak out?
0: Uh, yeah, World War II.
1: World War II. Thank you, Chase. Yes, absolutely. All of a sudden, putting people back into factories and being part of the war industries. And yes, finally, World War II extracts us, lifts us up from uh, the terrible hold of uh, the Depression. Now, Roosevelt does something Um, as part of his vision that um, speaks to communication and is really considered um, extraordinary in its own ways. Um, He decides he is going to talk to the people on radio. And of course, the series of um, chats that he gives, the series of talks become known as the fireside chats. Um, now, of course, what always makes me smile is that there was no, there was no uh, fireside. He was speaking from the White House, but it didn't matter. People felt that Roosevelt was talking to them. Um, presidents have, had given speeches, but Roosevelt was talking to people. When Roosevelt died. Um, uh, A man stopped his wife, Eleanor Roosevelt, on the street, and he said to her, Mrs. Roosevelt, I miss your husband. I miss the way that he used to talk to me about my government. It's extraordinary. Um, Certainly no one would say that about any of our past presidents, um, perhaps in, in the last 25 or 30 years, certainly that I can recall. By the way, people seem to think that Roosevelt was constantly on the radio, constantly speaking, and giving uh, these uh, fireside chats. In fact, over the almost, uh, what was it, it was 13 years that he served in the White House, he gave 31. That was it. Um, Moving on with the idea of vision, John F. Kennedy comes to the White House in 1960, and he talks about something called the new frontier, new is a big word for presidents. And uh, Kennedy says that um, he wants to see money spent on social reform and welfare, as well as there being ambitious projects like going to the moon. Unfortunately, he never lived to see it, but it would happen before the end of the um, uh, uh, The uh, decade. Um, other things that happened uh, during his time um, went along with this vision, but perhaps nothing more than um, something that he announced um, at um, my alma mater, the University of Michigan, and he announced it on the steps of the student union on October twenty eighth, 1960, at midnight, when he told thousands of students that he was going to be proposing something called the Peace Corps. Um, It remains today and um, is an enduring legacy of uh, John F. Kennedy. Um, One last person with a vision that he tried to follow through on was Lyndon Johnson, who followed Kennedy upon his assassination, and he talked about something called the Great Society. Johnson was never a great speaker. And we're going to talk about the importance of being a good speaker as president, but he too wanted very much to improve the life of citizens. And um, during his time in office, we get Medicare, uh, civil rights passes, the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Um, uh, Johnson's reputation, unfortunately, is always associated with the Vietnam War, which he was mired in, couldn't get out of, and it forces him in March of 1968 to say in a radio address, I I will not seek nor will I accept another term as your president. He realized that um, he had lost credibility and things were just not going to go well from that point on. OK, a second point that uh, Professor Dalek talks about is charisma or dynamism and um, what is what is being char- charismatic um, besides being dynamic? I think it means that it's it makes things exciting for people um, certainly um, uh, we've had presidents who have done that for us um. I mentioned uh, Franklin Roosevelt uh, a few minutes ago with his use of radio, and he made it exciting for people to be involved with uh, the recovery of the country. Things were getting a little better, and he was a cheerleader for that. Um, uh, John F. Kennedy, again, a lot of charisma. He was the youngest man to serve as president, and in so doing, there was a sense of vitality and it was an exciting time to be an American. Some of you who are uh, listening tonight may recall that there was a record album that came out during Kennedy's time in office. It's called The First Family, it made terrific fun of the entire Kennedy clan. Um, but uh, the one who seemed to enjoy it most was John Kennedy. Um, And when he was asked about it, he said, yeah, I I thought Vaughn Meter, who impersonated him, did a nice job. But the truth of the matter is, I I think he sounded more like my brother Teddy than he did like me. So there was that nice sense of that sense of self-deprecating humor, which was really very nice. Another president with great charisma, Ronald Reagan. Uh, Reagan, of course, had a background as um, uh, he came from acting, then switched to uh, politics later on in his life. Um, Started life out, by the way, in case you're not familiar with this as a Democrat later became a Republican um, and was elected as a Republican. president in 1980. Um, But again, there was always that sense of excitement that things were going to happen, that these people were not going to sit still. Finally, I'm going to include in that group um, Barack Obama. Um, uh, Barack Obama burst onto the political scene in 2004 when he gave the keynote address at the Democratic National Convention and excited a lot of people and many people walked away from that and said this young man has a good uh, future coming in politics and of course four years later he was running for president and of course he was elected. And we'll talk about this in a little bit, but he had tremendous rhetorical skills. He's a wonderful speaker. And um, that really stood him in good stead. Um, As you can see on the slide, um, Professor Dalek also talks about pragmatism. Pragmatism, of course, is the idea of being practical, of being shrewd, of moving the country to where you think it should be. I'm, I'm only going to use one example here, um, and it does involve Franklin Roosevelt, but it's such a good example that I, I think it, it really does speak for itself. America was very isolationist. After World War I, the country simply did not want to get involved in any more foreign wars. A Neutrality Act had been passed so that technically you couldn't even declare war. Now, uh, Roosevelt was watching uh, what was going on in England. Actually, he was watching what was going on around the world. Hitler had come to power. Benito Mussolini had come to power with the fascists in Italy. There was a a large movement towards militarism in Japan. And uh, Roosevelt is aware of this, and he's watching it, um, but he can't do anything. Because the country and the Congress are isolationist, They don't want anything to do with anything. Um, things get really desperate for uh, the English. Uh, they are being bombed mercilessly by Germany. Um, By the way, if you want to read an excellent book about the bombing uh, and and what was going on at this point in the American-British relationship, I recommend to you a book by Eric Larson came out this year called The Splendid and the Vile. Wonderful history of of what went on. At any rate, um, Churchill is appealing almost daily to Roosevelt saying, please, we're not going to be able to hold out against Hitler much longer. And um, Roosevelt is trying to move the American public and the Congress towards helping, and they're not buying it. Finally, he gives a speech, and I'm just going to read a quick excerpt from the speech. And he says to them, he says to the Congress and to the country, um, suppose my neighbor's home catches fire, and I have a length of garden hose, Four or five hundred feet away. If he can take my garden hose and connect it up with his hydrant, I may help him to put out his fire. Now, what do I do? I don't say to him before that operation, Neighbor, my garden hose cost me $15. You will have to pay me $15 for it. What is the transaction that goes on? I don't want $15. I want my garden hose back after the fire is over. And what uh, Roosevelt is doing is saying to the Congress and the American people, we have these old battleships and they're, they're standing, they're in um, dry dock. And uh, we really, we're, we're going to share them. We need to share them with the British people. And we're going to do like this garden hose. It's going to be a lend. Um, the, the British are going to pay us, but then they're going to give them back. Now, Roosevelt knew they were never coming back, but it was the idea that he needed to move people forward. And he was very pragmatic about it. He, he used this speech, and when this passed, we ended up aiding Britain. And uh, you all know, fortunately, the end of the story. Moving on to consensus building. Consensus building is the idea of of putting together a coalition, getting coalitions, getting people to support you. And again, I'm only going to give you one example here, but it's from Lyndon Johnson, and it's with civil rights. It's, um, maybe it's no surprise to anyone, but the uh, opposition to civil rights was um, extreme. Uh, It was bitter. There were any number of um, uh, votes that were taken earlier where civil rights was uh, voted down. Um, But finally, um, Lyndon Johnson, interestingly, a Southerner is able to put together a coalition of um, Democrats and Republicans who believe in doing the right thing in social justice And Johnson goes out and he sells it to the people and he gets the consensus. He builds the support and civil rights passes. And um, it is the law of the land. Trust and credibility. Um, If you have um, no trust um, and credibility, then you're pretty much kaput as president. Um, If uh, anyone remembers... um, Uh, President Jimmy Carter, Carter lost his credibility over a number of things that he was doing and and it really doomed his presidency for uh, Johnson for Lyndon Johnson. He lost that trust and credibility because of Vietnam. People just did not trust him anymore. it, the question has been raised, though I'm not sure that that we'll see it play out yet for a while. Uh, whether President Trump has lost a lot of credibility with regard to coronavirus, we'll see. Um, that one has yet to be um, it, to play out, and and uh, you know we'll see it this fall. I think that probably. Um, Uh, Donald Trump is very unlucky in that he was kind of moving along very well to re-election because the economy was quite good, and then uh, coronavirus hit and turned all of our lives upside down. Now, I have a question, and again, anyone, please um, go ahead and yell it out. Does anyone know, and it was in the 20th century, Who is considered to be the unluckiest of presidents? I can't hear you. Coolidge. Who would be considered to be the most unlucky president of the 20th century? Nixon, maybe? President Nixon? Why would President Nixon be considered the unluckiest president? Watergate, maybe? Well, um, think of, you know, an event that really you can't control. Unfortunately, you know, there, there, was, there were certain issues where um, President Nixon could have done some controlling um, with Watergate. Okay. Going once, going twice. Kennedy? Kennedy. Why would Kennedy be considered the unluckiest president? Because he was assassinated because well yeah being assassinated definitely is a very unlucky thing but no no okay i'm gonna help you here um it was herbert hoover now why hoover well hoover comes to uh, office in march of um 1929 by the way herbert hoover always gets a bad rap he was really a very very brilliant man um had fed much of europe after world war one um comes to the white house he's in office it's march and in october of 1929 the stock market crashes and the great depression begins one historian wrote that herbert hoover came to the white house paused for a grand job of building and instead he was obliged to patch he was pretty unlucky harry truman used to say that um, uh, Herbert Hoover did not create the depression. The depression was created for him, but it didn't matter. Um, he could not uh, help the United States to, to push out from uh, uh, the weight of the depression, and um, he was uh, he he lost the election of 1932 to Franklin Roosevelt in a landslide. Okay. Um, So understanding that um, luck would have uh, this effect for certain presidents, again, it's the same thing for Donald Trump. He did not create coronavirus, but he is dealing with the effects of it. And, um, you know, we've we've been living through uh, trying to uh, get back to some degree of normalcy. I have one last thing to add. That is the point that I added, which is communication competence. Um, I believe that this is important and I base this on my own experience of watching presidents and studying them for a long time. Um, What I found is that um, a president and presidential campaign, uh, Campaigners, too, and you're seeing it right now, have to be both effective and their discourse um, appropriate. Um, You need to be at least a decent speaker, better if you're a good speaker, best if you're an exceptional speaker. Okay? So, um, among exceptional speakers, we would certainly have to put Barack Obama. We would have to put um, Franklin Roosevelt, um, maybe in the, the next uh, tier down, perhaps Bill Clinton. But these were people who could take advantage of situations rhetorically, and all of them also had the facility to adapt to changing conditions. If if things suddenly could shift, then we know that they they were able to respond rhetorically. Um, Other parts of this, too, um, would be grammatical correctness um, and and, uh, cadence, being able to string ideas together. So if we were looking towards maybe the bottom layer. Um, George W. Bush was not a particularly articulate president. Donald Trump is not particularly articulate, though um, he has the benefit of uh, great resources in um, uh, the media and getting his message out, but that's a different story. Um, But communicator competence excusing as an issue. As we look at the 2020 race, I think that we're all wondering about Joe Biden and just how competent a speaker he is. Unfortunately, he's had his issues with gaffes over the years. So this is something that if they hired me right now um, to uh, work with him, and by the way, Joe, I'm available. I'm available to anyone. um, I would work with him on Communicator competence um, and and being able to frame thoughts and being able to uh, produce uh, good strong rhetorical um, responses. I
0: have a question okay. if you don't mind.
1: Go, no, please go. Um,
0: so uh, we talked about like uh, George Bush and Joe Biden, and um, they are both gaffe prone. But I've noticed that something a lot of people tend to like about them is that they have that like folksy vibe. Because they're not particularly eloquent. Um, And so I was wondering how that plays into communication competence. Because some people really do love that they sound like your uncle at a barbecue. Like they really just have that like very hometown vibe.
1: I think that's a great point. I really do. Um, I think with certain people, um, and and I think that this does work for Joe Biden. And I think it did work for uh, George W. Bush to a certain extent. The fact that they're not perfect um, really, um, uh, is not a terrible thing. Um, it, you know, maybe it makes certain listeners more comfortable with them and that's okay. Um, I'm trying to think of others. Um, uh, Harry Truman, um, was not a great speaker. Um, but he, he was plain spoken. And there was no artifice. There was nothing There was nothing fakey about his speech. And for that reason, people, people listened to him. Um, poor Truman, by the way, really had to deal with, with something that many of the others didn't have to. Remember who he followed into the White House? It was Franklin Roosevelt. And Franklin Roosevelt had died and uh, Truman became uh, the president. And for um, a year after, many people referred to Truman as his accidency. It was, he, he kind of was carrying a, a big load there trying to continue with Roosevelt's programs. Certainly, they were very, very big shoes to fill. So these are the qualities Professor Dalek teaches us of the effective presidents. But what about the less successful presidents of the 20th century. Um, Dalek tells us that they lacked vision or they failed to come up with a simple statement or a phrase to explain what they where they hoped to lead. Um, I'm thinking here of uh, three presidents of the 1920s Warren Harding Calvin Coolidge and then herbert hoover and i'm wondering if if you ever studied these in history class or in political science or maybe even in communication if you remember anything particular about any of those three um, does anyone have have any mem-
0: memories of them haley i remember during the depression they called a lot of the like really run down like homeless people towns and stuff like that hoover run- uh, that's that's one of the things I remember,
1: uh, and I went to a high
0: school named after President Harding. So,
1: oh, did you really? Oh, okay. Well, Warren Harding was a, a small town uh, magazine publisher from Marion, Ohio. We we wouldn't rank him among the more erudite, smarter presidents. At one point, they were trying to his administration was trying to negotiate some financial legislation and Hoover said to, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Harding said to one of um, his secretaries, you know, I wish that that, that there was a book that I could buy that would explain these economic points. And then he says, but darn, I probably wouldn't read it anyway. That's the kind of person he was. Um, and uh, there is a fair amount of scandal connected with Warren Harding, but you'll have to turn in uh, tune in another night and we'll talk about scandal. Um, he's followed into office by um, Calvin Coolidge, Calvin Coolidge, a man of very, very few words. He was the one who said the business of America is business. Neither one of these gentlemen was a particularly articulate, Uh, speaker, not very good communicators. Um, Coolidge in particular, uh, there's a story, maybe apocryphal, which means maybe it isn't true, but he was of such, he said so few words that a woman sat down next to him at a, at a dinner in the White House one night and she said to him, um, Mr. President, I have a bet with someone that I can make you say more than two words. And he turned to her and said, you lose. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of person that he was. And of course, with Hoover, again, um, he was a brilliant mining engineer, but he was not a good communicator. Remember, too, that The three men that I mentioned, Harding, Coolidge, and Hoover, also did not have the benefit of radio. Radio really, you know, comes into its own around 1927, and if memory serves me, um, Hoover does make a few few, uh, speeches on the radio, but they don't use it very much. Um I haven't mentioned Dwight Eisenhower and uh he was actually one of the better presidents was not a man as as uh, historians would tell you of of many words was not one of the greater communicators but um did have some vision it's because of Eisenhower that we have the in, the interstate road system that we have so um I don't know that I, you know, I would put him as one of the more successful presidents, but um, the other things um, that we might consider with these less than uh, successful presidents is that um, They weren't pragmatic enough to make the deals that that needed to bring the country along to be in step with them and they lacked the charisma and the strength of character to really, really lead so um as we look at all of these um i think you can see certain elements in every president even those who we would call failures had some of these qualities probably not in in great um uh in, not in a great amount but um perhaps there was a part of Harding that was pragmatic perhaps Coolidge did have um, some ability uh, to uh, have people trust in him. But the people that we remember are those that have all of the characteristics that Professor Dalek mentioned. Are there any questions? Otherwise, I'm, I'm going to tell you a little bit about some presidential campaigns, but any questions?
0: I had a question. So you said that uh, President Wilson passed some social justice legislation while he was president. I was not aware of that. And I was wondering if you could give some examples because I have heard some uh, things that were pretty bad about him in the opposite direction, like that he resegregated the military. And um, it's also widely known about that he screened uh, the pro-Klan film Birth of a Nation at the White House. So I was just wondering if you could explain some of that because I was a little perplexed by that point.
1: Okay. Um, and, and I just found out recently, um, the, the, you may have found it out before me, that um, while um, Wilson was the president of Princeton University, no black students were admitted.
0: Yeah. Um, I, well, I didn't know that, and, but uh, I, I'm, I'm not surprised.
1: Yeah. And um, I, I don't know if a decision was made about this, but there was supposed to be something done um, with regard to the the name of the Woodrow Wilson School of Public Affairs. I'm not sure if his name was removed from it. They voted to remove it. Was? Did they, they voted, vote They voted they to vote. remove it. I wasn't sure. Okay, thank you. Um, by the way, it, it might not surprise anyone that um, he wasn't really in favor of women getting the vote, but then when um, Uh, voting passed for women when the 19th Amendment passed, um, he certainly went along with it. Um, I I always found it interesting that he didn't support the vote for women because he had three daughters. And you, you would think maybe. Okay, so I know that there was some legislation that was passed during his time in office that had to do with um, trying to um, do some things to increase public housing. Um, and and this, was, this came about as a, as a practical um, um, solution because, and I don't mean to gross anyone out, but there were so many rats in Washington. Um, and they were such a problem in some of the neighborhoods that um, he was in favor of it. Um, Truthfully, um, uh, Wilson's achievements are more in the area of uh, foreign affairs than in domestic legislation and I'm going to have to um, ask you to hang on to the next class and I'll bring back some more um, examples because I've got to go back and and just uh, refresh my memory. Um, and doing this right now, I'm, I'm just having trouble recalling, but I do remember the legislation about public housing. So just remind me about that for next time. Okay, very quickly, um, I wanna shift gears and uh, talk about a few elections and um, maybe uh, just, just tell you a little bit about some of the um, uh, communication elements that uh, were Um, functioning there, and um, also to possibly refer back to a few things that Professor Dalek said. Okay, well, you folks are going to be seeing uh, a film very shortly. It's called Recount. Um, And uh, that is uh, a film about the election of 2000. On the left side of the screen, you see pictures of Al Gore and uh, Joe Lieberman was a senator from uh, Connecticut, and uh, George W. Bush and Richard Cheney. The election took place, and as some of you may remember or you may have read about, um, it seemed at first that Gore had won, and uh, then it seemed no, that um, George W. Bush had won the state of Florida, so he had won. Um, Al Gore who uh, was Bill Clinton's vice president, conceded. By the way, not one of the great communicators of all time. Nice guy, nicest guy in the world, but not a great communicator. Um, And then it seems that there were some problems with the the physical ballots being used in Florida. And because of that, Um, As you hear, as you're hearing right now, we might be waiting for um, maybe a few days, possibly a week to have the results of the election of 2020 because of our use of mailing ballots this year. Well, um, in uh, 2000, we waited from election day until December 12th. Um, And that is because of all of the litigation that took place in this particular race. Um, It's a great story. If you're not familiar with it, um, you're going to learn all about it. Um, But uh, again, a a fascinating election with um, an unexpected outcome. 2004 has never struck me as one of the, the, the more interesting of the elections. The incumbent was George W. Bush and uh, Vice President uh, Richard Cheney. The challengers were John Kerry, who was a senator from Massachusetts, and uh, John Edwards, who was a senator from South Carolina. There was a um, the uh, vice presidential debate had the spectacle of Cheney absolutely wiping up the floor with, with uh, John Edwards. At one point, um, Cheney said to, uh, to Edwards, you know, uh, Senator Edwards, I go down to the Senate every Tuesday and um, I never see you. I don't recall having seen you. Um, There was also a controversy that developed uh, that had to do with something called the Swift Boats, and we'll be talking more about it, but there were a group of veterans that said that some of the things that John Kerry was claiming that he had done during the Vietnam War really had not been his achievements. Um, The debates between uh, Kerry and John George W. Bush, if I had to rank them on one to 10, I'd give them an eh, because uh, they there wasn't any electricity. There certainly was no charisma. Um, uh, even with that, though, um, Kerry came uh, perhaps a little bit closer um, than was expected, because Bush-Cheney piled up 286 electoral votes to Kerry and Edwards, 251. That brought us to 2008. And that was, um, again, another election to remember. On the left, and interestingly, um, uh, please note that he has dark hair, uh, (laughs) is Barack Obama. And uh, below him, that uh, youngster from uh, Delaware, Joe Biden. On the upper right, John... uh, Uh, McCain, and Sarah Palin, the governor of Alaska. Um, By the way, it's something interesting for you to do, which has nothing to do with anything, but take a look at the pictures of the presidents when they were inaugurated and Mm -hmm. look at them four years later. Um, The changes are... Professor... uh, yeah, you know they they age. It's it's it is not an easy job by any means, and it it just takes so much out of you. Um, you know, today, uh, Barack Obama is completely uh, white-haired, and uh, uh, that's not uncommon for those who have served. Uh, you know, certainly you look at Bill Clinton; it's the same thing. Okay, so yeah, go ahead. There's please. also
0: a really good movie about this election produced by HBO. It's called Game Change. Um, Game Change. Thank you. Yes. Yes. The woman who plays Sarah Palin, immaculate. Truly. um, Highly recommend. Uh, Even if you don't like political movies, it's a very funny movie.
1: I don't know if you've ever heard Sarah
0: Palin talk. Okay.
1: Okay. And uh, that comes from a book um, by uh, John Heilman and mark and i can't think of mark's last name um but the the name of the book is game change um i had thought that maybe i would assign it to you but the truth of the matter is it's 12 years ago already and i wanted you i you know there, there's so much material being put out that's fine it's enough um so it's a um it's a hotly contested race um the, uh, the debates between both Obama and McCain and Sarah Palin and Joe Biden are um, entertaining. Um, if you watch the debate between McCain and Obama, you're going to notice something that you won't see in all presidential elections, and that is uh, respect, respect for each other, um, they may have been on uh, very diametrically opposed politically, but they respected each other. Um, later on, we're going to be looking at um, some of the election humor from, from this year. And in particular, we're going to be looking at a Saturday Night Live recording of a debate, uh, I'm sorry, um, uh, an appearance between Hillary Clinton, who lost the election, uh, nomination to Barack Obama and uh, Sarah Palin. So that's something that's funny and something that we'll look forward to. Um, 2012, um, a different election. Um, uh, The incumbents were Barack Obama and Joe Biden. And now Uh, Mitt Romney, who had been previously the governor of Massachusetts, and Paul Ryan, who was from Wisconsin. He was a congressman. He would later become the Speaker of the House. Um, This is, I think, for, this is a, a lesson to us all in the fact that one comment can so very easily sink your ship And one thing that really went far to sinking the ship of Mitt Romney in 2012 was a comment that he made when he was asked in one of the debates about women in his administration, and he made the unfortunate comment that he had a binder full of female names. Now, that doesn't sound, it sounds pretty innocuous, but it got blown up and um, he was ridiculed for it. It hurt um but there was also something very unlucky for um Romney and Ryan in that election and um folks in New Jersey might really remember this um October of 2012 do you remember um an event that took place if i told you it was a weather event okay. Hurricane Sandy. No one remembers yeah. Superstorm Sandy. Super Storm Sandy. Superstorm Sandy, right. Um some of you may remember that Barack Obama came to New Jersey and he and Chris Christie had their arms around each other and uh later on uh the Republican uh campaign said that one really hurt. It was, you know, I mean, it was certainly, uh, you know, not not meant to be that way. But, boy, you know, uh, there we have a media image that just uh, ends up hurting Mitt Romney. They're defeated. And um, that's that. Okay. 2016. We are going to spend a lot more time on 2016 in future classes. Um, I think everyone um, should remember this pretty clearly. Uh, Of course, it was Hillary Clinton against uh, Donald Trump, Tim Kaine, the senator from Virginia, and Mike Pence, the former governor of Indiana. I have said this before, I might have even said it in the first class, but I'm going to say it again. And that is, if someone tells you that they knew that Donald Trump was going to win in 2016, they knew it, they were convinced, they're full of baloney. There was nobody who identified Trump as the likely winner in 2016. 538, real clear politics, morning Mm. consult, uh uh-uh everybody thought that Hillary Clinton was going to win. Um, even Trump did not think he was going to win. Though I've always wondered about that because I think he's a very competitive man. And I think that um, as the election went along, uh, his uh, audiences grew, the enthusiasm for his for him grew. And I think that he really enjoyed it. And um, I will tell you that um, I, I know that Uh, Melania Trump was not very happy about the win. She certainly had no desire to be first lady, but, you know, uh, she's there in the White House. So there are a number of reasons, of course, um, why uh, Clinton lost in 2016. But it wasn't the debates by um, almost every source that I've been able to, to pull up. Um, everyone ranked her as winning all three presidential Mm -hmm. debates. Mm -hmm. Um, The the vice presidential debate was kind of a blah affair. Um, Nothing really much came out of it, but it was those three presidential debates. Hillary Clinton is a good speaker. Um, She's very articulate. Trump, not as much. Um, But he also had a particular charisma, which she didn't like. This, uh, which she didn't have. This was an election between two candidates that people did not particularly like. Um, It's been said, if Joe Biden has one thing going for him in 2020, it's that he's likable. Mm. So, you know, you can sort of factor that in. So. Um, these are just some, uh, this is just a a quick look at the 2016 election. Um, and we'll go back and be revisiting it. Um, as we go forward, think of those, uh, qualities that professor Dalek tells us to consider in presidential effectiveness, and you can even look for it in campaigning and um, we will be continuing our discussion in our next session, and I look forward to seeing you then. Have a good evening.
0: Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.